This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we support design engineers and make lightning protection easy. You're listening to the Struck Podcast. I'm Dan Blewett. I'm Alan Hall. And here on Struck, we talk about everything aviation, aerospace engineering, and lightning protection. All right, welcome back. This is the Struck Podcast, episode 23. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett. And in today's episode, we've got a lot of good stuff to cover. First, interesting article about the odds of catching COVID-19 on a flight, which uses some uh, percentages. And this was actually a really interesting read. I'm, I'm glad we found this article. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about the advantages and challenges of electric-powered airliners, which are potentially in our future, maybe allow, along with... Uh, with hydrogen as well. We know all these all these technologies are being explored by all these major companies. In our engineering segment, we're gonna talk about Boeing in trouble again with uh, un- undue pressure that they've been applying to some safety reps out of their South Carolina uh, factory. And man, that's been an ongoing thing. We've talked about that before, and here we are again. And we're also gonna chat a little bit about vertical aerospace and Honeywell. They're doing some interesting stuff together. And lastly, in our electric tech uh, segment, we're going to talk about Volocopter, which, uh, Alan, there you are. How are you, sir? You are very outspoken about (laughs) these designs. And this one, in my view, is like the most, looks like a toy plastic helicopter of all of them, but you're digging it. So we'll we'll cover that. Yeah, I think it's cool. I think it's cool. And they've been flying a human in it. So that that puts them ahead of everybody else on, on my uh, scale of aircraft. Yeah. yeah. Well, your proof's in the pudding guy, I guess. So well, yeah. let's let's talk about this before we get there later. Let's talk about the odds of catching COVID in a flight. And so planes are flying an increasing amount. Obviously, it's still nowhere like normal, but we're getting back there. And so far, it doesn't seem like these are the these are the vehicles of, of infection. Like it doesn't seem like there's mass spread coming from airliners. And they're talking about in this article um, out of Bloomberg, which is really interesting, uh, just about the odds of getting it. You know, the, basically this uh, researcher, Mr. Barnett, is talking about that you have a, basically a one in 4,300 chance of getting COVID-19 on a full two-hour flight. Um, so, yeah, what, I mean, what, what were your takeaways from this article? Well, that's the, the, that number is based upon just the having somebody sitting next to you with a – uh, sitting next to you for two hours and everybody's masked, obviously. So there's, uh, you know, the, the percentages kind of change depending on where you are in the aircraft, right? So, so that's why the probabilities are so low that unless you're really sitting real close to that particular person and there's some some probabilities with that. I, I, it seems like the, the, there's enough flight data and enough tracing history right now that there's, I, I think you could, pretty well say there's not huge outbreaks i think the cruise ships have had significant outbreaks of 20 percent of the of the uh, the population on a particular cruise coming positive on an aircraft we don't see that so the one in roughly five thousand numbers not bad one key thing no one's rubbing suntan lotion on each other on a plane (laughs) i hope not (laughs) i mean one heck of a flight dan i don't know where you're traveling (laughs) (laughs) um sorry i didn't mean to cut you off there i just had to throw that joke in but um 
but yeah, so, and then what's interesting about this article is that he's talking about, look, just the proximity to other passengers. So if, if there is one or two people on board that does have it, how close are you to them? Also, uh, you, so, you know, uh, again, tons about the systems on an aircraft and he's talking about how the air is constantly being renewed in airplane cabins. So it seems like every 30 minutes, uh, you pretty much brand new air. Oh, sooner than that. Totally sooner than that. Every couple of minutes. But it's also, so uh, about two thirds of the air is getting dumped overboard. And about a third is getting recycled back into the cabin after it passes through HEPA filters. Uh, and you know that the airlines are changing those HEPA filters <laughs> on a regular basis. Plus, they're cleaning the cabin, so there shouldn't be much going into the HEPA filters to begin with to clog it because the aircraft are as clean as they probably have ever been. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, the, 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 the air circulation system is going to be working at roughly peak performance, you would think, right now. So your your risk goes way, way down. And, and yeah, and adding that middle seat opening basically adds another factor of two uh, probability so it lowers your your rate by a factor of two that's that's a that's a huge uh, improvement for uh, a single seat uh, that makes a big deal but it, it just gets back into the likelihood that someone really has it and when and not to say that people haven't traveled with COVID and not not know it but it appears to me having traveled a good bit during this time at least a couple of times we've traveled there is nobody that appears to be even remotely sick or have uh, cold-like symptoms or right they don't do any of that and even if they had seasonal allergies in which we're in that period of time where seasonal allergies pop up no one at the airport is showing signs of seasonal allergies they're just not traveling so I, again i think your your risk are low and compared to other things that people are doing, like going to the grocery store or going to the pharmacy, you got to kind of put it way down on the list of risk items right now. Yeah. And you also wonder if the people that are saying, oh, I feel okay traveling are probably living a healthier lifestyle in general, like maybe exercise a little more. I have no data to back that up, but you probably think that maybe the people who are healthiest are most likely to like give it a go. Seems reasonable, yeah. although I have no data to that's just a speculative. I, I think notion that's general. I would say that's in ballpark is probably true. I think that people that feel they would be at risk are not traveling. Yeah, uh, which, is, which see, is good. Which is good. Yeah, which is smart. Which right because they're they're weighing the odds also. So if if I was eighty years old, I'm probably not on an airplane. If I had uh, a weakened immune system for whatever reason, I'm probably not traveling on an airplane. So. You're, I think you're right about that. I think people are making smart decisions about how to travel. And so what's left, and that is the traveling public, is in pretty good, healthy shape and in the right age demographic where they're not going to uh, have severe consequences if they do happen to pick it up. So I, I think you're partially right about that. So let, let's shift gears here. So a uh, really good article in Aviation Week about uh, propulsion systems. So the advantages and challenges of electric powered airliners. So um, obviously like with Tesla automobiles, one of the cool things about them is that their torque curve is very short. They go zero to 60 in like basically hyperspeed, right? Um, and that's mm -hmm. one of it, one advantage here with electric motors on aircraft as well. But um, can you talk us through the kind of the pros and cons? Of, of just sort of electric propulsion on aircraft. Uh, here's, here's, here's sort of my delineation of all this. You will never get to jet speeds on an electric aircraft. 
that's not going to happen. So there's there's some sort of misnomer, I think, that you can take a 737, rip off its uh, its uh, kerosene burning jet engines, and put on a uh, electric fan. It's going to go just as fast. Wrong. Totally wrong, right? Some part of the thrust is the burning of fuel. It's mass times acceleration, right? So that's force. So you're actually burning something, accelerating it, shoving out the backside, which is creating force and thrust. You don't have that with electric propulsion. So what you're talking about now is turboprops, uh, Q400, Dash 8, uh, King Air, uh, ATR 72. I'm just rattling off on turboprop airplanes. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of thing you're talking about replacing. So you're talking about a 200 plus mile an hour kind of aircraft uh, that, or a short 360. There's another one made in Belfast. There's there's a, there's a bunch of them that you're you're just going to replace those aircraft, which don't tend to be long. They're, those aircraft are not going to fly four or five hours. They're going to fly an hour, maybe two. Because the noise begins <laughs> to get you, so that's the market they're replacing. That's I think that's the only market they can possibly replace. And this is why uh, the European uh, consortiums are focused on hydrogen, because propellers are not the future for for flights across the Atlantic. I just, <laughs> yeah, I just too don't loud. see it. Yeah, you know. We had the Concorde back in the 70s, and I think, if anything, so it's like we're reliving, like with uh, Elon Musk's uh, uh, space launch, the astronauts coming back the other day. You know, we're kind of reliving the late 1960s, early 1970s. I feel like we're kind of getting back to that again on terms of a flight where we're starting to push supersonic aircraft in the commercial sense. I don't, that's not going away. To get from New York to London in an hour is still desirable. It just is, and people will pay for it. People will pay for it. So our six-hour flight from New York to London on a 767, whatever it is, is not going to turn into a 14-hour flight where you have a stop in Greenland. That ain't happening on a turboprop. Not today. Now, um, one thing mentioned in the article is that electric drivetrains can be more than 90% efficient compared with 55% for large turbofans and 35% for small turboprops. Um, is there any way to, I mean, obviously that's like a pretty impressive number, but like you said, the noise is just going to be a, a drowning out factor. I mean, can you put them on the rear, make it like pusher planes? Is there yes. some kind of unique, um, you know, design that can maybe alleviate some of that noise pain? Well, the NASA did a bunch of experiments back in the in 1980s and 90s on, uh, sort of ducted fans and kind of rotating propellers, uh, on like a DC-9 type of aircraft where the engine is mounted on the fuselage. Uh, that went essentially nowhere. Because you're, 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 at some point, it's not about the efficiency of the propulsion system as it is the convenience of it. That's why people fly, because it's convenient. Going from New York to Los Angeles in four and a half hours or five hours is a lot better than driving across the country for five days. It's a convenience factor. And that can taking a step back in the convenience and doubling the flight time, in my opinion, is not going to happen. And short flights where it doesn't, you know, there's a marginal difference in time, fine, but long flights, no way. And and this, you don't see a lot of discussion about this quite yet, but you're not going to see a lot of people try to penetrate a market where uh, the Airbus 320 and 
and the 737 are established. If anything, they're just going to make greener fuels. That's what's going to happen or make a switch to hydrogen at some point. But the jet is the, the, the thrust burning fuel for thrust is going to stay. All right, let's uh, shift gears here into our engineering segment. So let's start first with vertical aerospace and Honeywell. So Honeywell is, is uh, they've just announced an agreement to supply flight deck, deck flight deck technologies to vertical aerospace, um, who have a pretty interesting urban air vehicle, um, and they're in the demonstration phase still. So this is encompassing multi-touch displays, avionics. Uh, avionics software and the overall vehicle operating system. So this seems like a pretty big deal. I and mean, we've talked about this before with, you know, established companies like Honeywell helping some of these smaller EVTOL companies, you know, just shorten their curve because it's a long road to certification. So what are you, what have you got on this, this partnership here? I, I think it's a smart move on both, both parts. So they're, they're Honeywell is betting on sort of a, uh, I don't want to say established, but sort of a forward-looking company with cash that seems stable, right? So you want to Honeywell wants to kind of penetrate that marketplace and and just be seen as a leader in terms of the overall electric aircraft power distribution, cockpit displays, flight controls. They do all that already, so they they have all the the infrastructure to certify and do all the testing and to uh, you know, design it such that they can m- minimize the weight and maximize the performance and cut costs out in places where they can. So they're just the right size company to do these things. They Honeywell has been around um, a lot bigger aircraft, which I think is can hurt them, even though they, they, they own Honeywell owns a facility out in Kansas City, which used to be, or Olathe, which used to be... Um, King King Radio. So they King Radio was around for a long time, dealing with smaller aircraft forever and flight controls and autopilots and that kind of stuff. So they have a small aircraft division sitting sitting there. But uh, when you think of Honeywell, you think kind of 737, 757, 777-type aircraft. So getting into the smaller market is a clear uh, prospect, future uh, revenue enhancement thing for them uh if it turns out to work out and and the market does grow like they think it's going to grow then honeywell is going to be way out front of everybody else and i'm i'm expecting someone like garmin to do the same thing now i haven't seen so bae's been in this marketplace and they're trying to make the same moves honeywell's made their move and, they, and they've latched themselves to vertical aerospace uh garmin is sort of that last one which hasn't made their move yet and i'm curious to, to see where they end up because those are kind of the big three players. Rock Collins is in there too, and Collins hasn't done much either. Uh, so there's a couple more uh, dominoes to fall here before we see where it all settles out. But they're picking winners and losers. Make no doubt about that. They're picking winners and losers in this eVTOL market. And where these larger companies uh, put their mark is going to make a big difference in terms of the marketplace and, and future investments into these companies. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Let's uh, let's shift gears in here uh, to the kind of the big story. So FAA is proposing uh, a fine to Boeing of one and a quarter million for exerting pressure on safety reps in South Carolina. And this is a really good story out of the Seattle Times by reporter Dominic Gates. Um, so we've talked about this before. I mean, 
the you know Boeing and of course other companies in the past have had this sort of culture problem where they're pressuring their engineers to sign off on things that they know are not ready yet, are not ready for inspection, not certified, whatever it is. Um, pretty kind of damning report here. So, Alan, I know you have strong opinions about this, and you've actually been in this situation at various points in your career, yep. and you've seen it. Sure. Um, mm-hmm. So. Um, tell us a little bit about this undue pressure situation. Well, in this particular case, it has in South Carolina, Boeing has a separate facility to uh, build 787s. So they got a facility out in Seattle, Washington area, and they got a facility in South Carolina. Uh, the, the facility in Washington is a union factory. In South Carolina, it is a non-union factory. So there's different dynamics between the two and sort of hierarchical uh, structures differ because in the union model, there's sort of an, uh, a place to go for complaints. In the non-union model, it has to be dealt with internally. But that's the way most aircraft companies are, smaller ones are, is they don't tend to be unionized. Or if they are, the engineers and the inspectors don't tend to be part of that mix. Um, they get wrapped into con- in collective bargaining, but not in any, any real sense. Uh, and it's fascinating that there's not more oversight, but I, I, I get the dynamic, right? So you, you, you get into different parts of a large organization like, like Boeing is, and it's hard to keep track of every little piece that's moving and then the individual personalities that are going on. And, and uh, all it takes is for uh, a lot of the pressure to be put on for a particular delivery that, uh, people in the organization that are not held accountable by the FAA, so to speak, where uh, a DER, DAR, inspector, those kind of people have sort of a higher power, which is the FAA that they have to report to, and they have to report to their their, their, their Boeing boss. They sort of have two, two chains they have to feed. Uh, management doesn't always have to do that, depending on what they are. So most of the managers got to just report to the management above them. So there's it's just sort of like this downward, you know, everything rolls downhill sort of event happening. So on the management side, it's just pressure, 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 pressure. On the on the inspector side, it's pressure from the FAA to do the right thing, pressure from the company to get stuff delivered on time. And those don't always meet. And I found over time that you either have people and personalities that fit the mold to back off, uh, to know when to back off, or you don't, and they just keep pushing, 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 and it just gets to be almost childish. It It's like on a, a, a school ground fight <laughs> at yeah. times. I mean, guys have come to blows. It's like, I don't think this is worth it. This stupid airplane is not worth it. But you could see this in a similar situation in sports in any sort of I, – I tend to see it more large factories and that kind of thing. And uh, it just uh, – you can't do it. And in today's world, you just can't do it. And maybe 20 – definitely 20 years ago, I saw a lot more of it than I do today. But it doesn't mean it was right 20 years ago either. It just means that uh, we've somewhat changed our our – business practices to be uh, more honest maybe or just more open well Um, and and probably the rise in human resources departments as well i mean in the article it says the faa letter accuses senior managers of pressuring harassing and berating the performance of yeah i mean like 20 years ago or even for i mean for me immediately what jumps to mind is like the mad men culture 
with like ad yeah. agencies. I yeah. mean, the, the stuff they got yeah. away with was insane, right? Like all the sexual harassment. Of course, none of that's mentioned. That that's not an issue here. But just like no. the thing, the thing is like you said to your point. The things you could get away with just in corporate culture in general was way more lax back then. It was still happening, and now there just seems to be more accountability. I'm sure it's a confluence of factors, but and I'm sure HR yeah. is, is part of it, but. Um, but yeah, it says they press an inspector to perform a compliance inspection, which was not ready for ins- inspection, um, berated the performance of inspectors and threatened to have them replaced by other employees. Um, Seen it. And then and then retaliated by declining the interview or declining to interview a highly qualified manager for a promotion who after that manager had filed an undue pressure report. So Seen lots it. of just yeah. bad, bad corporate culture. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, what's what's going to happen here? I mean, this is a this is a large fine, I guess. I mean, it's not a. I don't know what is the scope of this fine here, because one point two five million dollars to companies like this is 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 spit. Yeah, it's a it's a nickel. Right. But right, I mean, it's do, just do, saying we could drop a heavier fine. That's what it says if they wanted to. But I mean, do heads roll for this? Are people are some of the no. people who are no, no one no one uh, loses their job? Nothing. Well, I'll take that back. So Boeing has more recently with the seven thirty seven email situation from uh, flight test pilots writing things that may are better left in their heads than writing in an email. I've gotten, gotten fired. Uh, so I wouldn't see Boeing pulling any punches here and removing the, the that management or relocating that management to a, a less pressure situation. I, you know, it's got to be tough right now if you're at Boeing. You, you know that deliveries make a difference on that quarterly result, and if you can get an airplane delivered at the right time, it can it can impact stock prices. It just does. So you know, it, it does flow down, and there's pressure from the top, and it, it it's sort of that unsaid thing. You don't have to say anything. Like the the head of that division doesn't have to say a lot to the managers. They know, you know. So it isn't it isn't like. Um, there's just this line of, of defense of, well, I didn't tell my managers to go screaming at the inspector. No, you didn't, but you didn't monitor. And it's hard. It's That's hard when you got such a big corporation to know what everybody's doing at any possible time. But I think you have to have in the back of your head to know, like, this is a time where people, samples are going to get off the charts. I need to have some sort of monitoring going on, what's going on on the floor and watch it a little more closely than I otherwise would in good times. And um, it, it just appears to me that there has been just a slight delay in that response and they're gonna learn a hard lesson. So this one and a quarter million dollars doesn't make a financial impact to Boeing at all, but it will send messages to the management. All right, in our final segment today, let's talk about Volocopter and their idea of Volo City, which is, uh, so Volo City will be the first commercially licensed Volocopter. Um, but right now I guess it's known as, as Volocopters, like their demonstrator. Um, mm. but really interesting. It looks like a helicopter. Looks like if it was six inches long, it'd be like, it looks like a toy. Uh, but of course a lot of these EVTOLs are futuristic looking like, you know, they have the white, the very clean, you know, electric vehicles all want to be white. Of course, I guess most planes are anyway. But right. anyway, my my ramblings about design aside, because this does look like a toy, you're pretty uh, you're pretty interested in this, and you feel like this is one of the more viable designs. Which it does seem busier, which is why I was a little bit surprised because you're very exacting as far as 
the more complexity it seems, the less Alan Hall <laughs> enjoys it because it seems like more <laughs> yeah. certification headaches. But you like you like a lot of this design. Tell us why. Well, I th they have first first of all they have flown a, a small demonstrator vehicle for a while now. And there's a great video on YouTube of them flying their demonstrator in Singapore. And actually, there's a pilot, actually a human inside of it, taking this aircraft for a, a test flight, and it's. It, there is some simplicity in it, even though it, it may look complicated, there is simplicity in it. It has multiple uh, propellers and multiple electric motors, and they it's it's thought out like if I lost propulsion in one of those motors, propellers, the rest could take over and get me where I want to go. Uh, and it it has the other feature, which is I like the propellers way above my head, so I don't feel Low like there's propellers. Low risk, yep. Yeah, <laughs> it's a lot lower in this design than some of the other ones I've seen. So that always makes me feel comfortable. And it, it obviously, they're flying something with a person in it. So when you put a human being in something in an aircraft in any development sense, and God knows there's been a lot of crashes of development aircraft and a lot of pilots lost. You have to have a lot of confidence in the design. And it, it, my gut says, at least it looks like they've done like system safety assessments to validate the design so that the, the probability that this thing's going to crash is extremely low. And they, they have a pathway to certification, I would think, because they have taken that smaller initial design and basically made it larger to hold it looks like it would hold up to four people right now it'd be close to it so it's got that helicopterish feel but without the big spinning rotor blade over top uh which means it's just going to fit into more into smaller spaces yeah cool. and and so I'm, I'm pulling apart the the technical features for volo city which again i guess that when they say volo city that's what they believe will come to market commercially yep and they're saying two passengers, including hand luggage, and a max payload of 200 uh, kilograms. So probably not going to fit four people unless they're quite quite tiny humans. Um, but you never know. That design could always change over time. But nine, nine battery packs, lithium ion, uh, only takes a couple minutes to swap batteries, 18 motors, mm -hmm. brushless DC. Uh, but the other thing that's interesting here is the range. And so airspeed is 110 kilometers per hour. Range is only 35 kilometers. So we talked about Lilium in a past episode saying, hey, we don't want this short flight market. Like, we don't think that's viable. But mm -hmm. Volo City is saying 35 kilometers, that's our market. Like, pretty short, right? So yeah, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, they're going after this financial market that another another well-invested in companies saying, we don't think that makes any sense. I think it makes any sense because air aviation is a very niche market. So if you have the, the market segment uh, to feed and your price is right, you'll fill that market. I think I think this, what immediately comes to mind are two places in the United States where I think this, well, maybe three, that makes a lot of sense. New York to the Hamptons. So if I live in New York City and I'm a fashion designer, an attorney, or something of the sort, and I want to go from my Manhattan offices to my home in the Hamptons, this is a thing that'll get you there. Or if I oh, want to go to the but Jersey is it? Shore. But is it? Yeah, that's it, Hampton, right? The Hamptons Same. is a six-hour drive from New York City. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this, that ain't totally thirty-five is. kilometers, sir. <laughs> this one's not going to make it. <laughs> right? Yeah, I know it. Uh, and and uh, 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 this is a little far, but it's the same philosophy. There's a lot of traffic 
from sort of San Francisco area over towards Lake Tahoe. Uh, so it's further than 35 kilometers, but I think as this thing figures itself out, it'll, it'll serve that marketplace. But if you're going from San Francisco, let's just say you're going from San Francisco to Silicon Valley. Well, we both kind we're, of that. Yeah, and we were both off. <laughs> it was not, it's not a six hour drive. It is far to the tip of Long Island. Uh, two hour drive from New York yeah. to the Hamptons, 90, 94 miles. So in kilometers, it's probably ish, 160, 160 ish. Right. Something yeah. like that. So, yeah, well beyond the range of this guy. But sorry, keep going. So you think the San but Francisco I, I don't, market. I, I don't think this is where it's going to stop, right? So the only thing that's holding it back really is, is battery capacity. That's it. You know, you, you load more energy in the battery as it could go farther. Oh, that's totally true. can. Right. And I, I, you know, the efficiency numbers are going to come to where they come to, but uh, I definitely think this is a really good start. And their uh, increased range on any aircraft, I don't care what it is, increased range increases the probability of sales. It just does. Increased load capacity increases the probability of sales. So you want to increase the maximum amount of carrying capability and the maximum range it will be because you just fit more marketplaces. That'll happen over time. But it's 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 kind of that guy kawasaki apple computers sort of philosophy which is get something to market get it out there first yeah. and it may not be your best output but it's an output and then you can work on the next generation and then the next generation so go just go take your take your wins ignore your losses and keep going and uh, you know with with volocopter i think they're taking that philosophy and they're, they're probably going to get to the end yeah, and I think that's a good point with, that you talked about the battery packs, which is, you're right, in five years when maybe this is certified, or maybe it's three years, whatever, a battery pack might take you twice as far and weigh half as less. So that's a, that's a good point that you're right. Some of the technology that's going to restrict the range is certainly not finite by any means. And that's a, yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I hadn't thought of that. Very astute. But once they get, to, once they get this thing working and show its safety record, I think it's going to, sky will be the limit for them. So Alan signs off on Volocopter, a rare victory for one of these companies. You've got Alan in your back Never in your take back the corner. investment advice of an engineer ever. All right. All right. Well, you're a tough critic. And like I said, I'm I'm surprised of all the designs that this one is. Uh, but, I, but it makes sense, your logic. You don't want to be decapitated. You do want redundancy. You do want a, a semi-proven design. I guess it has all those things. So it makes sense. It does. All right. Well, that'll do it for today's episode of Struck. If you're new to the show, thank you so much for listening and please leave a review and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out the WeatherGuard Lightning Tech YouTube channel for video episodes, full interviews, and short clips from the show. And follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our handle is at WGLightning. Tune in next Tuesday for another great episode on aviation, aerospace engineering, and lightning protection. Strike Tape, WeatherGuard Lightning Tech's proprietary lightning protection for radomes, provides unmatched durability for years to come. If you need help with your radome lightning protection, reach out to us at weatherguardaero.com. That's weatherguardaero.com.